Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. I wanted to start by talking to you about dogma. And the reason for that is the first time I interviewed you, I think it was back in 2014, it might have been 2015. 15, yeah. yeah we, did a, we did a video on dogma is dead in the fitness industry. And people with dogmatic views pushing my way or the highway, their days were numbered. And I think in the intervening eight or so years since then, we've seen dogma, well, society is more polarised. People are more entrenched in their positions than, than ever before. From a fitness industry point of view, why do you think that we were wrong about that and, and how that dogmatic viewpoint was going to be moved to the sidelines and in, in many instances has actually come to the forefront? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things with this. I think the first thing is there's, you know, we kind of, people have this static view of like people in fitness or in a certain community. And the reality is that that population is always in flux. So you always have people kind of exiting that community and entering that community. In fact, I think the average lifespan of somebody in like fitness in terms of like whether it's interest or, you know, not necessarily competing, but just like an interest in the fitness industry is like about two years. So the reality is there's been several cycles of people who have been through. And so, you know, what people have figured out who like are charlatans or scam artists is they don't actually have to change their messaging, even though it's been proven wrong, because there's always good. There's the phrase, the suckers born every minute. There's always new people cycling through this. I mean, you see this like with some of the supplements that are, are being promoted, like people are talking about ectosterone, for example. Well, ectosterone, I remember that like 20 years ago when I first got into bodybuilding was like people were talking, it was actually more like 25 years ago, people were talking about it. People asked me about HMB or they asked me about, um, what's it called? Pyruvate. I heard pyruvate recently and I'm just like, wow, this stuff is just all cyclical and all just comes back. So I think that, that's part of it. And I do think, you know, social media has completely changed. Um, the algorithms really reward sensationalism. And so the best way to get in front of people is to make a very extreme blanket statement that lends itself to being dogmatic. And so I think, you know, nuanced topics that have a lot of like, um, or topics that have a lot of nuance to them, or if they're pre <clears throat> presented in a way that has a lot of nuance, it just doesn't trigger those viral algorithms the way, you know, somebody getting up there and very dogmatically stating that this is the way it is, this is the way it should be, and it's the answer to all your problems. And quite frankly, I'm not, I'm not sure how you solve that sort of stuff. I think a lot of people probably get their information now from social media, first and foremost. Does that worry you? Um, I always ask the question compared to what? <laughs> so yes and no. 
Yes, because there is a lot of horrible information on social media and any idiot can build a following. Um, like really, the best way to build a following is just do the most insane things and say the most insane things you can possibly think of. You just look at people like Carnivore MD, Liver King, you know, like of all the things, like I remember being on a podcast one time, I'm like, as a protein researcher, never in a million years, I think I'd be on a podcast defending plants. You know, like I never thought that would happen because usually I was like defending my research against the vegan, you know, the vegan extremists. Um, so yeah, and then then when that whole movement sprung up and carnivore sprung up, I'm like, this is insane. Nobody's gonna be, oh nope, look at all these people that believe it. Okay, never mind. Um, so I think that yes, I, I'm I'm petrified because of that. But if we go, if we flash back 25 years ago, I mean, where did you get your information? Oh, magazines, newspapers, news. I mean, those things don't really have a great track record for the veracity of the truth either, or having the wherewithal to appropriately interpret scientific literature and then convey that in a way that um, is not oversimplifying to the point where it sends the wrong message. So... I mean, just look at the just look at the way correlation or epidemiological data is presented. It's not presented as, well, this thing increases the risk of this, but there's also caveats of these other lifestyle factors that may impact it. It's this causes this. And it's like, no, that's not what that research says. So, um, yeah, I think at least you have the opportunity to find evidence based people now. Um, you just have, it's a much bigger haystack to weed through, but at least there are needles now. You can find the needle, but at least there's needles. Before, I'm not sure there was many needles. You've spoken, you've never been shy about calling people out for, for being frauds or for being charlatans. That's that's something you've always kind of done. Where does that sense of, of duty come from? Because it must be exhausting and, and the pylons and, and the criticism you get from doing it. I'm just fascinated to get your psyche of, of how you still have the will and the, and the determination to keep calling out people you think are doing a disservice or are perhaps doing things for, for illegitimate means. So there's a, a line from one of, uh, a movie that I really love. It was uh, from uh, Live Free or Die Hard, which is in the Die Hard series. And uh, the kid who's, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's, there's basically like a, a terrorist plot and uh, they're, these terrorists are shutting down like power companies and the internet and all these sorts of things. And this kid is asking uh, John McClane, Bruce Willis's character, he's like, he's like, I can't do this, man. I'm not a hero. And Bruce Willis says, I'm not a hero either. Like, you know what being a hero gets you? It gets you, you know, gets you shot at, it gets you, you know, lose your job, wife won't talk to you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then the, and then the kid goes, why are you doing this? And he's like, because there's nobody else to do it right now. Believe me, if there was somebody else to do it, I'd let them do it, but there's not. So we're doing it. And um, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like I previously, like 10 years ago, maybe a little bit before that, most of my content was not calling out people. It was mostly just providing education. And I just, and I, I had this feeling, you know, I, I think I'm kind of like a, uh, a pie in the sky idealist, like libertarian sort of like, oh, if people do bad things, eventually it will catch up to them. And I do think for the most part that does happen. 
but there's always new people coming in <laughs> saying nonsense, right? And there's always new people coming into the industry who like they they read a they see a TikTok or they see an Instagram or whatever. And then they're not going to bother to do their due diligence on that individual if it fits with their worldview or their 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 kind of uh, their perception of things or their bias. They're just going to share it, right? They're not going to bother to see if it's legit or not. And so, I think what I do is actually very important because, like I said, most people don't want to deal with the criticism and the blowback. I mean, I and I know I have been kept off of you know, various podcasts and even TV shows uh, because like somebody who was connected, I had called out and that's okay. You know, like it's probably in some ways it's helped me because, you know, people follow me because they know I call it this stuff. And in some ways it's hurt me and I'm okay with that. You know, um, I have to do what I think is important and what I feel is right. Um, have there been times when I've probably taken it too far and like gotten a little bit nasty with folks? Yeah, probably. Um, but, you know, I've seen the damage this stuff does through like being a coach for for over 10 years. You know, I've seen, especially in terms of like eating disorders and how many people, you know, just develop food anxiety and, and have really horrible, uh, you know, relationship with food. And so, you know, I'm very passionate about this stuff. So, you know, to answer your question, I think one thing that I've I've always had is a lot of endurance <laughs> in in things when it comes to goals. You know, I've been in this industry 20 years, uh, over 20 years. And I, I've had a lot of people say, well, I'm gonna get you out of this industry or I'm gonna do this or I'm gonna do that. I'm like, good luck, I hope you packed a lunch, you know? Uh, Cause it's gonna be a while. Um, and I just, you know, there are, there are times where I get frustrated. There are times where I feel like I'm not making a difference, but um, I do feel what I do is uh, needed and I think that it's, I get a great deal of fulfillment for it because I have so many people reach out to me and say, thank you so much for what you do. I have so many people say this, like, I used to hate you because you called out somebody I followed. And then over time, you just got me questioning things. And then I realized that this was absolute nonsense. And now like, I'm so much better off because I'm not wasting money on XYZ and my, my relationship with food is better. My health is better. You know, so I do feel what I, I do feel like what I do uh, gives me a great sense of fulfillment. And in that aspect, it's not difficult for me to keep doing it uh, because I, I truly feel like it's making a difference. Does it ever get you down though? I guess you you, you sense that, that there's that duty that it needs needs to, to be corrected or someone needs to be put in their place. That gets you so far. But when you do get that inevitable pile on the blowback, people start picking through your history, looking for threads they can pull on. It's not a nice feeling, I imagine. How do you cope with it if it does get to a point where you are struggling? Uh, you know, I, I keep in mind what Reggie Jackson used to say. He played, for, uh, I don't know if you remember from baseball, but he played for the Yankees, was a, a, a Hall of Famer, and he said, people don't boo nobodies. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting criticism, that's fine. You know, if you don't like me, that's fine. You know, at least you're aware of me. You know what I mean? Like, um, at least I can get in front of some people. Now I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea and that's okay. You know, but I think a lot of, honestly, like I got, I, I, I went through a lot of bullying growing up and I think that actually helped me develop pretty thick skin um, when it comes to this stuff. You know, I, so I just, I kind of like, yes, I'm not going to pretend like it never bothers me. I'm a human being, you know what I mean? So there are days I will say, I usually like once a quarter, I'll say uh, once a quarter, you know, I'll have a day 
where I'm like, nothing I've done has made any difference. This is a waste of time. I should just go get a normal job, have somebody tell me what to do and collect a paycheck. Um, but that lasts for like, you know, half a day. And then I'm like, all right, enough of this, you know, pity party bullshit. Let's get back after it. Um, so I do have those times, but I always, you know, keep in mind, like, you know, some quotes I say to myself that are like self-affirming is, um, you know, someone else's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. That's something that Les Brown says. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt said, you cannot make me feel inferior without my consent. So, you know, one of the things I tell is I, you know, on a fundamental level, I actually really like who I am. I know I'm a good person. I know I treat people well. I actually care about people. That's why I do what I do. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to try and shame me or make me feel bad or, or tell me I'm this or that, I don't believe you because I know who I am and, you know, taking a long time to get there. And I think, you know, even up to a few years ago, some of these things would have really cut deep. But I realized like the only way something can make me feel bad about myself is if some part of me believes it's true. And so, you know, now <laughs> somebody said something the other day, I'm like, you, you're just jealous that I'm awesome. Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds cocky, but I'm like, you know, I'd rather have somebody accuse me of being cocky than be insecure and not like myself, you know? So I think just a lot of like, uh, quite frankly, a lot of therapy, a lot of self-affirmation and, and just realizing that like, I know why they're saying these things. They're trying to cut me down so that I feel insecure about myself and I stop, you know, doing what I'm doing. And I'm quite frankly, I'm just way too hard to get headed to give people that kind of satisfaction. You mentioned that the childhood had bullying and, and obviously that must have led to some insecurity growing up. Oh, yeah. When is it, has it been a gradual transition to, to be, you know, front and center online on social media, getting the criticism? I imagine it must always kind of, there must always be a little kernel that, that, that can be, be triggered by some of these comments. Has it been a long gradual process to get in a position now where you can quite happily say, I'm copy and I'm awesome and I'm really okay with that? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's definitely been a journey. And I think, um, you know, some life experiences I've been through and, you know, a lot of it has been like surrounding myself with the right people, people I really respect, who I respect, who I think are good people, who are also telling me, hey, Lane, you're a great dude, you know, um, that, you know, you can... I always say like, you gotta be careful because like self-affirmation can also become delusional. You know, like we've all known somebody who, who outwardly would say they're awesome, you know, and claim all these things. And, you know, everyone else is like, what reality do you live in? Because you're a horrible person, you know? So um, I think there is like, it, it's taken that component of, you know, believing in myself and liking myself and then also getting that validation from people who I truly trust and I know will give it to me straight. And I think like, I cannot overstate one of my good friends, his name's John Deloney. He's a mental health expert. And he said, you know, really uh, one of the big keys to life is connection with good people that you value. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to say like my inner friends circle are people who I know will absolutely rake me over the coals if I screw something up or I do something outside my value system. But if I do something right, they will give me all the credit in the world. And I think, you know, when I was young and I got 
into bodybuilding and I started getting some attention. I started doing well. I started like reaching some of my goals. I think I was kind of like, I've got this stuff figured out, you know, like I got this stuff figured out. And then as like life punched me in the, in the gut a few times, um, you know, a lot of these childhood things kind of came back up. And I mean, I, I'm a really big fan of if you could afford it, getting therapy from, from good mental health professionals, um, because that made a big difference in my life. And then honestly, the other mental health hack is having, you know, really good friends in a good inner circle. And people say that, but it's like, you can go too far, you know, in either direction. If you've got friends and all they do is criticize you, they're not your friends. They're trying to cut you down to make them feel better about themselves. And you need to get those people out of your life. But if all people do is, and I've had this side of it too, if all people have to do is praise you, they're probably sycophants and they're looking to get something out of you. And I've dealt with both sides of that. So what you really want is people who will be honest with you and give you criticism when you've done something wrong, but also like, you know, just be the person in the front row cheering the loudest for you when you do something right. I've spoken to and interviewed many people in the fitness industry at the, at the very, very top, whether that's athletes, coaches, uh, a whole spectrum of, of, of executives as well. And some of them, obviously, they're all incredibly determined and motivated, but some of them, it all seems that the determination stems almost from a bit of a chip on the shoulder. It's something that's happened or a determination to prove people wrong time and time again and never really easing off the gas because there's always someone they need to prove wrong. Does that ring true for you or does your determination and motivation come from another place? It definitely started there. That's definitely where it started. Um, and I would be lying if I said that. So the core of the reason I do the things I do is because I want to be useful for society. I want to, I want to look back when I'm on my deathbed and be able to go, I made a difference in the world. That, that's the core reason. Now, I definitely enjoy it when somebody says I can't do something and, you know, talks trash because that's just going to, that's not my, I always say like my discipline and my, my values, that's my like gas tank, right? Like that's what's going to actually take me a long distance. But somebody like doing that and me getting that chip on my shoulder, that's like some nitrous on a car, right? Like it's not going to carry me a long distance, but it'll speed me up for a little while. You know what I mean? So like I would be lying if I said that, you know, no, no, that stuff doesn't affect me and it doesn't drive me. Of course it does. Like I'm a human. I love, you know, like again, I'm a driven person. I always tell people, I'm like, I'm driven already. Don't give me any extra. You know, if you give me extra, you're in trouble, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't part of it, but it's not the main driver behind what I do because it's not that sort of way of doing things is not a sustainable way of doing it unless you want everyone to despise you. Because if you look at some of these athletes, who kind of live their life that way with, you know, everything's a chip on my shoulder. You know, I'm just out here to crush people. They may have successful careers, but they usually don't have successful relationships. And to me, you know, I don't want to just be successful in my career. I want to be successful in my relationships because I got some really great advice given to me one time by one of my, one of my first uh, clients, he was a, uh, or he is an estate planning tax attorney. And, you know, he does wills and all that sort of stuff. And he told me, this is back in 2007. He said, Lane, you're really good at what you do. And I, I have no doubt you're going to be very, very, very successful. 
He said, so let me give you some advice that you didn't ask for. I've watched a lot of really wealthy people die. Let me tell you what, what everyone says. Or let me tell you what people never say. I wish I'd have made an extra $100,000. I wish I would have worked more. Um, I wish I would have spent less time with my family and more time on my work. He said, well, here's what everybody says. I wish I had pursued the goals that were really important to me. I wish I had spent more time with the people who mattered to me. I wish I would have traveled more. I wish I would have had more experiences. I wish I wouldn't have spent so much time worrying about stuff that didn't matter. Um, and so I just, I, when I get to the end of my life, you know, I don't, if I was, you know, worth a billion dollars and had made all this stuff that helped people, but then my kids hated me, like to me, that would still be a, a, a failure, you know? So I think I try to always keep in mind, like drive hard, push hard, but also know when it's affecting your relationships. I first came across you and your work when you were kind of known as the if it fits your macros guy, right? And I know this wasn't necessarily uh, a reputation or a persona that you sought out, but you were grouped in with, with, with a number of other academics who were proponents of this view or maybe just saw it as something that could be considered rather than you know a do or die approach. And ever since then, as you said, you do get people coming up to you say, I hated you initially, or I've never been a fan. Would you agree that you are a polarizing and or divisive figure? And if so, how do you kind of deal with that? Are you okay with that? Is that something that you'll fan the flames of if it helps you get your message across? I'm interested in just how you see yourself from the outside world looking in. So I think if you actually listen to the stuff I say, especially my videos or my long form interview, I don't really feel like I'm that polarizing. I feel like I have a pretty nuanced take on most topics. Um, but like when I'm, when I have, when I am convinced of something based on data, I have pretty strong opinions about it. And I have no problem sharing those opinions. I mean, people all the time, I'll get people on podcasts like, you know, if there's anything you don't want to talk about, you just tell me. And I'm like, I, I, you're not going to like ask me anything. I don't care. I'm a very transparent, genuine person. Uh, if it, I can't think of something that would bother me, but if I do, I'll let you know, you know, um, because I feel like there's always value in like providing a perspective, but, you know, I, I will say things like, Oh, you know, like all the time I say, I'm not sure about this. We don't have that much data. Here's my opinion. You know um, now I can't help how that gets framed from other people who straw man my arguments. And, you know, a lot of people, I've had people come and say, well, I know you hate low carb. And I'm like, why do you think that? I'm like I've said that low carb is a very viable way for to, to lose weight. What I also have said is like, hey, some of these claims around low carb diets and why and how they work are complete, re completely ridiculous and asinine. But that doesn't mean I hate low carb, you know. So I think it's hard not to be polarizing if you're popular these days. I, I think it's really, really difficult. And I, I just remember something my mom said to me. She was like, honey, don't try to get everybody to like you. Because some people are going to just hate you for existing. They're going to hate you for drawing some oxygen every day. So be yourself. Because at the, end of the, at the end of the day, you have to be good with you. And if you try to be somebody else to please people, uh, then you're not going to be good with yourself. And I, there was times where I've done that, where I've tried to change who I was to please people, especially people who have been close to me. 
And uh, I think now I understand why, like, you know, as you get older or as people get older, they just become like much more direct because they just like realize how much time they've wasted trying to like, you know, mold themselves or fit themselves to other people or, or like dance around, beat around the bush. And, you know, as, uh, as death approaches, I think we just value our time more and we just go, Nope, not going to do that. So I think it's hard to exist uh, as a figure and not be polarizing, but I don't necessarily think I'm that inherently polarizing. I think the polarizing part of it is some people, they just disagree with the idea of calling somebody out. They, they don't, they don't like that. They, they think that that's, um, that it's uh, not classy or something like that. And I kind of go back to a, I think it's a Martin Luther King Jr. quote, which is basically uh, silence is consent. If you, if you see something and you know it's wrong and you're silent about it, you're basically saying that's okay. So you're never, you're never going to stop. If you see something that, that, that you feel is, is wrong or being peddled for the wrong reasons, you, you're going to act. I don't foresee a scenario in which I'm going to stop doing that. <laughs> I also wanted to ask, Lane, are there, are there two versions of you? Is there the online persona or, or the person at seminars, presentations, speeches, and then someone who's off camera just, just with your friends? Because sometimes I, I meet people and what you see is what you get, exactly the same off camera as they are on, and others can be very, very different. Where do you sit on that? It, it sounds as though it's what you see is what you get, but I'd be interested to know if, if there are nuances and uh, or maybe a persona that you play up sometimes. Um, I think for the most part, yes, what you see is what you get. Um, and I, I mean, obviously, like, everybody's going to think that they're like that, right? Um, <laughs> but... Um, the people around me and then people when I, when I, when I've gone and I have spoken and then I've spent time afterwards with people or I've been around people for longer periods of time. In fact, um, feedback I got from like my last few uh, events that I attended was, wow. Uh, like, I mean, this is pretty much a direct quote. Wow. Uh, you are the genuine article. You are exactly as advertised, um, you know, and, and, so, for example, um, I went, I was doing a, a speech for um, the IFCA, which they basically um, coach coaches. Um, and I was like their kind of big motivational speech that they were going to have. And the day before, the night before, there was a mixer where everybody who was attending could come. And it wasn't required that I attend. I received no money for going, nothing like that. In fact, I was like paying for my own drinks and that sort of thing. Uh, and I had so many people walk up to me like, what are you doing here? Like, why would you come to this? And I'm like, well, I like meeting people just as much as anybody else. Like, you know, like this is fun for me. I enjoy talking about this stuff in general. And I want you to know from listening to me talk tonight, interacting with me tonight, when I go up there and I give this speech tomorrow, that this isn't an act, you know? Um, and, and the same thing, like I... I, I don't necessarily do this purposely, but I was, uh, I did another speech in Canada last week or two weeks ago. And um, there was a VIP dinner afterwards that I attended. And, you know, I just walk around and talk to people. I don't think I actually have ever sat down to eat my meal. I just walked around and talked to people. And the organizer for the event was like, you know, that is so nice that you did that for everybody that showed up. Like, did you, you, you made time for every single person. And I was like, 
well, yeah, of course, like they spent extra money to be here. Like, obviously, like, you know, this is this is cool for me. And then I, I've had people like um, at, a, at events will come up and take photos for me. I always tell this to people because some people go, oh, you must get so tired of doing this. You know, like, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you. I said, listen, if I ever act indignant or bothered that somebody wants a photo with me, take me out back and shoot me. All right. Put me out of my misery because the fact that people give a shit about what I have to say to me is the coolest thing in the world. So I will always take time to do that. Like the only time where I've, I've been a, not standoffish, but just a little bit you know, different is if I'm with my, my kids and, you know, like I, I'm just trying to like to not create a weird dynamic for them, you know, but I'll, I'll always like talk to somebody for at least a little bit. Um, but I have had to get a little bit more like, um, you know, uh, direct when I'm like trying to go do something. Cause otherwise like, you know, it can, it can be a time suck, um, if you're not careful, but I do think that I'm, I pretty much am how I am. The one caveat to that is, um, when it comes to like, I have no problem. I don't care if people like me online and I don't care if the people I call out like me, like that doesn't bother me. But my the people I care about, I care very much if they like me. And so, you know, when it comes to like conflict and like I have no problem having conflict with somebody who I don't agree with, like, um, you know, but I also like I've had people reach across the aisle like Thomas DeLauer, who I've called out before and say, hey, like, could we actually have a conversation? And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Because like if somebody's willing to do that, I think that shows, you know, that, that shows a lot of maturity. Uh, and I'm always willing to do that. But, you know, I don't really like if somebody, if I perceive them as like spreading misinformation or, or you know, being uh, a charlatan, especially if they're making money by spreading fear or misinformation. I mean, I just don't really care if they like me or not. So I guess that's the one difference is I'm, I'm a little bit more confrontational when it comes to that kind of stuff than I would be for people in person. But that's mostly because like people who are close to me, if, if there's some kind of confrontation needs to be had, you know, I still want that person to like me. So that would be the main difference, I would say. There's been a couple of controversies with online personalities, influencers recently. We don't need to go into any names where performance-enhancing drugs have been uh, a main asset in, in their rise to fame, despite claims of, of, of never using anything. I'm interested, Lane, in getting your take on where the line in the sand is. Obviously, you competed as a natural bodybuilder. You said you've never, ever taken any performance-enhancing drugs before, but... We're seeing so many kids now being exposed to influencers online who, if you've got any knowledge of, of the sport of bodybuilding or, or fitness in general, it's, it, it can be quite obvious to tell who's who's using, even if they're putting out a message of never having used that. I know from previous uh, listening to things you've said before that you don't really have an issue so long as no one's cheating in competitive sport. That would be your line in the sand. But I'm just interested whether that view has changed given the huge impact that these influences can have on, on young people and older people as well. Where do you stand on that? Yeah. I think if you're lying to millions of people, I think that that's a problem, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and then, I mean, I think we're probably both talking about the same individual, but, um, and then like not actually apologizing, but, you know, you know, claiming that you were doing it for some, like, you know, to bring awareness to mental health and like that train wreck of an apology. Um, you know, I think that I don't have a personal issue if someone chooses to use steroids. 
I don't even have a personal issue if somebody chooses to use steroids and sells products. It's a little bit dicey. Like I understand people say, Hey, are you natural? And people, if somebody like my thing would be like, listen, I get it. You're using an illegal drug. So you don't want to admit that. I understand that. Just don't answer the question. Like just don't answer the question. But some people go out of their way to actually like mock those people or, you know, use it to get even more followers, uh, you know, by doubling down on lies. So I mean, I just don't really have any, like, I have no sympathy, no real empathy for those kinds of folks. Um, to, to me, if you're willing to do that, like be a character and lie to millions of people, like you must not have very strong morals or ethics at all. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really know the kind of mental gymnastics you do to justify that sort of thing to yourself, but um, it's, I mean, at least in my value, it's not going to be in my value system. Now, obviously like people have accused me of drug use. And what I'll usually say is like, listen, go back and look at a picture of me 15 years ago. It doesn't look that different from how I look now. <laughs> you know, like if I'm taking steroids, I'm on some really crappy steroids and if you've ever seen me in person and then compared me to somebody who's my height, who competes in say the IFBB or untested powerlifting, I promise you, you will see a massive difference in the physique. <laughs> like, yes, I can take really impressive photo shoot pictures um, in the right lighting. I can look really, really good. But for the most part, I look athletic. You know what I mean? So it's, um, I think that I understand the skepticism people have. And I think here's the other, the other part of it that's difficult for people to wrap their heads around. I think people want this like black and white line of, okay, past this, the person has to be on drugs, but anything up to this could be natural. The reality is there is a, a black and black and white areas where like, yes, definitely natural. Yes, definitely steroids. Then there's a big gray area where you've got people who are drug free who look way better than some people who take boatloads of steroids. Like I've I've known people, I've met people, you know, it, genetics matter, work ethic matters. Um, and so I think that's just really hard for people to wrap their minds around. But I always tell people like, listen, again, I have what somebody chooses to put in their body is their business. I have, I have no issue with that. I'm even fine with people selling products. Now, me personally, the reason I have never used steroids is I simply wouldn't feel like I'm being authentic to myself. I'm not making a judgment on people who do, but for me, it would not feel right. And it especially would not feel right if I was taking them and then selling things to people. So again, I'm not making ethical judgment on other people who do that. This is just my value system. Um, but I would feel very strange like selling supplements workouts, you know, nutrition programs. If I was having this extra help that a lot of people aren't privy to. Of all the accusations that have been leveled at you, and there have been a few over the years, is this the one that you've, that you've used steroids, the one that stings the most because of your achievements in, in, in competitive sport? Uh, or if not, what, what has been? I think it's up there. Like I value my integrity a lot. And so people say that, you know, especially like 
Like, I'm not going to say I've never lied. I have. Um, you know, everybody's lied here and there. And I've told some, some big lies in my life as well. Now, I would say, like, that there's been one time, I mean, I, I don't have a problem saying it. Like, my first marriage ended, I had a divorce or I had, a, I had a, an affair. And, like, that was pretty public. And, you know, it kind of like, you know, people said, well, see this guy, like, if he'd lie and do this, um, you know, he's obviously like scamming people other places. And actually, you know, I think that was like some universal karma for me because I, I can still remember I made a tweet over a decade ago where I basically said, oh, if you cheat on your spouse, I would never want to do business with you because if you'll lie to that person, you'll lie to anybody. And it's like the universe just has a way of being like, yep, smack, you know. So um, that is the one time in my life I operated outside my value system. Like I, I went based on like how I felt and I didn't go based on my principles and it almost destroyed my entire life, to be honest. Um, it, it was a, a long road to rebuild from there. It was a long road to rebuild myself. Um, so I think what stung the most was people saying that stuff based on the one real, mis one real bad decision I'd ever made in my life. Like to be fair, I did want to get divorced but I handled it in an absolutely horrible way. Um, and, you know, still the one thing that I just struggle to forgive myself for. So I think, you know, the reason it stung so much when people would say that is because part of me felt like it was true. Part of me felt like I had, you know, become, you know, a person I wasn't proud of and I wasn't. So, you know, it's been, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a good lesson to remind myself that, you know, feelings come and go, but your value system is who you are. And um, I think, you know, the last seven years, I've really worked hard to make sure I stay within that value system. What's your advice, Lane, for someone who might be at that rock bottom point now? Um, and I know this is, we're straying away from nutrition advice and talking about training, but I'm really interested to, to get your take on someone who's been through that journey by, by your own admission, incredibly difficult. And I imagine painful journey. How would you offer any insight to somebody who might be going through something similar? Yeah, I think again, like I really, I think a lot of people don't even know what their values are. Like what's important to you, right? Like I understand that, like really like, what are your top three or five values in your life? And when you have to make decisions in your life, think about, like, I would tell people, yes, like the, 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 the whole, like, kind of just shit show that became my life, that was very painful. But the reason I would, I would, never want to go down that road again is because of how it made me feel about myself. You know, like I, it was, I had this idea of who I was as a person and that became inconsistent with my actions. And so now I really try to think about even when I have to do something hard, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpalatable, I try to think about, when I look back in 10 years, am I going to care more about how this made me feel? Am I going to care more about what my actions were and how that was in alignment with my values? And I, it's going to be the latter, you know? So um, I'm actually in some ways thankful for that really, you know, harsh lesson because uh, 
you know, who knows? Maybe it would have been worse if I hadn't learned it when I did. I've read your blog posts, very you know, popular or widespread talked about blog posts on, on how sugar isn't to blame for the obesity crisis. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about obesity. Firstly, where, where do you think the drivers are coming from? And I know you've talked before about not being able to separate the, the psychological from the physiological um, and how hunger isn't really the main driver for us to eat anymore. There's so many other psychological cues going on, boredom, stress, peer pressure, all these other factors. So what do you think is, is behind the rise in obesity is my first question. Secondly, you've got the magic wand. There's no budgetary constraints. How would you fix it if you had, if you had that job for the day? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think the causes of obesity are multifactorial. My opinion is that they're mainly environmental. And that is, um, you are just taking, so like, let's take, um, I'm going to take a micro view and then I'll zoom back out to a macro view. So if you look at athletes who like had to make weight or, um, were used to like having a really high level of energy expenditure who then retire, you actually find really high rates of uh, body fat gain post-retirement. So you see this in a lot of boxers, you see this in a lot of wrestlers. And I think what happens is people get very used to their eating habits, but they don't necessarily change those habits when they stop expending so much energy. So you actually have really high rates of those people becoming like increasing body fat or becoming obese. Um, and so if that's like the micro level, what, what has happened is they were predisposed to certain habits and behaviors, and then they had the energy expenditure go down. Now the, the gap is going to be made up for by body fat gain. And so if we look back at, you know, the last, you know, 50, 60 years of the human experience, you know, just even, you know, 50 years ago, we had hyperpalatable foods. I mean, you had cakes and cookies and whatnot, but if you wanted them, you either had to walk down to a bakery or drive to a bakery, or you had to make them yourself. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like you weren't in a checkout line at a grocery store or a gas station or like an airport where there's a vending machine, like that's legit ubiquitous everywhere. And so one, people just started consuming more calories. And we see that like with the, with the consumption data, people just, you know, kind of linearly increase their caloric intake as they were exposed to hyperpalatable foods. And two, um, that probably could have been compensated for if people still walked, you know, and, and didn't have completely sedentary jobs. Unfortunately, the, you know, the habits that we created, like always clean your plate, you know, um, those sorts of things were good habits at the time, but are now not serving us. So if I look at the obesity crisis, I think it's one, there's, there's the, the environmental stuff, which is, um, you know, just access to hyperpalatable foods, very easy to get. Um, they tend to be cheap. So socioeconomic, right? Like uh, people who are working three jobs, you know, to make ends meet, like, it's a pretty tall order to be like, well, we need to meal prep and, you know, cook, you know, dinner every night and get fresh vegetables and whatnot. I mean, quite frankly, like hyperpalatable foods and ultra processed foods are very cheap per calorie. 
And so, you know, it's not the, the full explanation because you still have high rates of obesity amongst people who are successful and have money. Um, but it is, a, it is one thing that factors in. Then you have like your uh, environmental in terms of your family. So they show that if you have one parent that is obese, you're 40% more likely to become obese compared to somebody who has two normal parents. I don't want to say normal because I would say obesity is actually normal now, but like healthy weight parents. And then if you have two parents who are obese, it's an 80% likelihood. Now people have interpreted that data as well. That means it's a genetic thing. But if we look at, there, there are probably some heritable components of obesity, mostly on the appetite side of things. A lot of times we tend to look at, well, they must have slow metabolisms. The research literature is very clear on that. Obese people on the whole do not have slower metabolisms than lean people. Um, and so that really isn't a good explanation. But what is a good explanation is if your parents had poor nutritional habits, that you observed that and that became normalized to you and that's what you adopted as your nutritional habits. So there's those environmental factors. And as far as heritable goes, there, there are like fMRI studies showing that obese people, you know, they get a stronger reward from like food. Um, they don't get the same necessarily sensitivity to satiety signals. So even if they're, you know, having these satiety signals, they're not as sensitive to them. Partly that can be restored by exercise. And then that's the other thing, like now, you know, previously we didn't really have to think about going out and doing purposeful exercise because you had to walk to whatever you were doing or your job involved some sort of, you know, physical activity. But now we don't have that anymore. And so all these kind of different components have converged to basically be the perfect storm. Now you couple that with the one genetic component of this, which is probably ubiquitous across society, not necessarily just unique to obese people, is that people who are the people who survived and passed their genes on likely weren't people with really fast metabolisms or you know high levels of energy expenditure. Because up until you know, even in some parts of the world now, starvation is a very real possibility. And in the United States, even up to, you know, 100, 200 years ago, a very real possibility. Um, the risk of, so if you're looking at the controls on body weight, you know, one is the risk of starvation, which was, you know, basically in a blink of an eye in terms of genetics, like, you know, a couple of generations is not enough time to really drastically change our genes. You, you're still having these strong, um, genetic components to resist starvation. On the other end of that, what's the downside to having too much body weight? Will you become immobile and there's the risk of predation, right? Like a predator can go get you. Well, ever since we discovered tools, that risk has essentially gone to zero, like other than some freak accidents, you know what I mean? So there's not, the, the heritable components to prevent you from becoming too obese haven't really been selected for during natural selection and passed down through our through genetics. Whereas the components that are selected for preventing us from starving and being thrifty with uh, energy have likely been passed down. So I think all that stuff converges to try to, to set us up for if you're not mindful in some way of what you eat and how much energy you expend, um, you're going to be very prone to obesity. Then, as far as how we fix it, man. So if I can wave a magic wand, I mean, like basically what you could do is just say, okay, we're just eliminating all ultra processed food. 
but there's problems with that. So I want people to understand there's no solutions. There's only trade-offs because if you want to end world hunger, it's really hard to do it without ultra processed food because it's cheap. It's easy to transport. It keeps well, you know, if we're talking about, you know, places in third world countries where we're trying to eliminate hunger, I mean, you're going to do it with ultra processed food for the most part. So, you know, I think one of the things I really try to get people to understand is with complex problems, there's not really solutions. There's only trade-offs. And we need to have honest discussions when it comes to like government policy around what those trade-offs are. So I'm not sure I'm in favor of, you know, ultra processed foods or punishment for food companies. I mean, at the end of the day, really, I compare this to like news, right? Everybody complains about the news. And well, I've never met somebody who's like, man, I love the news. It's so great. Everybody's like, I hate the news. It's so negative. And then they sit there and watch the news for six hours a day. And I'm like, you are voting with your dollars right now. You are telling the news stations, I like negative news. Even though you're sitting there saying you don't, they don't care if you don't like it. If your eyeballs are on it, they are making money. Food companies, if healthy food sold, the food companies would make that. They would make more of that. But what, what sells? What sells is tasty, hyperpalatable food. And so the food companies are simply responding to demands for these various foods. So I can't really blame them. Um, you know, some people have said, well, they've suppressed research literature and that kind of stuff. I don't want to really get into that. That's possible, completely possible, plausible. Um, that's not to be discredited or anything like that. But again, at the end of the day, they're really responding to a demand. So I think what needs to happen is, yeah, I think there probably needs to be some kind of government policy. I'm not smart enough to know what that should look like and on what level that will work. And I mean, you know, they've tried some of this stuff. They've said, well, we're going to outlaw, you know, anything over a 20 ounce Coke in New York City. I think that, that was something like that. And it's like, well, you could just buy two then, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's a really, really difficult problem. And I, I really feel like If there is an answer, I think it lies with education. You know, now I do, you know, we can look at the model of smoking where, you know, smoking became just kind of, uh, I know it's a little bit different in Europe, but here in America, you know, smoking cigarettes is kind of looked at as like, ugh, gross. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, that was kind of done through almost like a shaming style of process I don't know that that's what we want to go down the road of because there's downsides to that. And, you know, right now the cultural pushback is the exact opposite of, of shaming for obesity. And um, I'm not, I don't think shaming is the answer for obesity, but I'm not sure that normalizing it is either. So I think education and being having open, honest conversations without people getting entrenched in dogma is probably the answer which means it's probably not going to happen because people are incapable of that when it comes to group of groups of people talking about subjects. Where, where do you sit on, on the spectrum of feeling very positive 
to very, very negative about whether or not this is a problem that can actually be fixed. And, and we mentioned big food there. And I guess that's very much a chicken and an egg. Are the public creating the demand or a big food creating the market that then the public, because it's so cheap, because it's so accessible, then you've got big pharma. I you know their ideal society is probably full of people who are fat, tired, depressed, because they can medicate them for 10, 20, 40 years. It's a cash cow. And then you've got the lobbying of, of, of how on government. I don't mean to be too negative or, or downhearted, Lane, but I'd be really interested. Just how do you how do you sit right now on that spectrum of positivity to negative negativity about whether this is anything we've got a fighting chance of winning? Probably more negative than I am positive. Um, and, and here's why. It's probably not an answer most people are going to like. Um, we can argue all day over who's responsible for the obesity epidemic. At the end of the day, hyperpalatable food is not going anywhere. It's, it's not going to be legislated out. I can't see that happening. Um, and even if it was, there would still be issues that need to be overcome. So it comes down to a fundamental, I heard this quote somewhere, which is, it doesn't matter if something bad has happened to you or you're in a bad place. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. We're always trying to tie fault and responsibility together. There are two different things. It may be someone else's fault, but it's your responsibility to fix it. So whether they get rid of hyperbolable food, whatever they do, at the end of the day, it boils down to the individual having just deciding that there is personal responsibility here. And sometimes I worry that the palatability of blaming the government or blaming the food lobbies or these sorts of things, it may feel good for people's egos because it's, oh, it's not my fault. True, maybe it's not your fault completely, but the responsibility is still yours to fix it. Now you can't, the food lobby is not gonna come down and find a way to decrease your energy intake and increase your energy expenditure. The, the, the government is not going to come to your home and hold your hand and get you through that. You have to decide to do that. And it starts with a decision. It starts with an internal decision. And I equate this to finances. I mean, you can say, wow, um, you know, look at the lending these banks did. You know, look at, look at um, the, the, finance, the way they set these finance. Absolutely. I'm not saying that they have no accountability, but at the end of the day, people still chose to get loans they couldn't afford. People still chose to take on debt that they shouldn't have. And if they are in debt, it is their responsibility to get themselves out of debt. The government's not going to come help do that. You know, people like uh, we had recently, um, the government issued a $10,000 kind of debt forgiveness for student loans. $10,000 is going to change your life. Just like, you know, food companies, uh, you know, if they cut, you know, find a way to cut 50, 100 calories on people's diets, it's not going to change your life. Okay. You have to change your life. And I think a lot of that comes with education and just being honest with yourself about whose responsibility it really is. And I think that the messaging needs to be both empathy and accountability, which the empathy piece is yes, you have, if you're obese, there are probably different things in your life that predispose you to that, but be it environmental, genetic, whatever it is, that is 100% valid. 
and it is probably not exclusively your fault. But it's going to be your responsibility to move forward and decide what you're going to do from there, because nobody's going to come save you. Like the government's not going to come save you. The 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 food companies aren't going to come save you. You have to decide to do that. I think you're always being seen as someone who is very strong in their opinions, right? What you believe is right, you're, you're convinced by. But I've also heard you say that when the data changes, you'll change your mind. So I wanted to end with two quick questions. One, what was the one thing you were most wrong about that you've done a complete 180 on? And on the flip side, what is the one thing you remain absolutely convinced you're right about? Okay, so I think for the most part, most of the things I've changed my mind on, I was not crazy strong in my opinions. A lot, a lot of times I would caveat my opinions quite a bit. Um, but probably the thing I would say I was most strongly in favor of was either the idea that LDL cholesterol wasn't really that important for heart disease or branched chain amino acid supplementation. Um, but let's take branched chain amino acid supplementation because I actually sold a supplement that had branched chains in it. Um, and I was sponsored by a company for 10 years that sold a branched chain supplement. Uh, and no shade at that company. They were great to me. I thought overall they were a really good company. They listened to my feedback, you know. Um, but obviously I, I believed in branched chain amino acid supplementation because I had it in my first products of my first line. And then when we came out with Outwork Nutrition, my, my new line, it was not any of the products. People asked me, like, why don't you have BCAs in here? I said, well, because there's where well, I used to think that they were useful. We now have about 10 years of data that pretty consistently show that if you eat enough total protein, branch chains probably don't do a whole lot. Now, I think there may be some benefit for delayed onset muscle soreness, but it's not, it's not enough for me to justify putting them in a formula. So I think for me, that was the thing I felt most strongly about that I changed my mind on. And the one thing you remain absolutely oh. right about, and, and you can't see any situation at present on which you'll change your mind about it. If there's more than one, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, no, energy balance. You know, the idea that like calories in versus calories out, like it's, it's, there's a lot of very, very clear research to show that, you know, if you eat food, your body has to do something with those carbons. They don't just vanish into thin air and you also don't create them out of thin air. They have to come from somewhere. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to be very, it would be very hard for me to convince me that, you know, it'd be very hard for me to be convinced that the energy balance model of obesity or just weight in general is incorrect um, because it's been shown over and over. And if you look at the most tightly controlled studies where they put people in metabolic wards and they can see everything that they're eating and how much energy they're expending, not only does it work, they lose pretty much the exact amount of weight you would predict. So um, yeah, I think that that would be the thing I'm, I'm pretty most staunchly about. So if you but see- again, if, Maybe our maybe our uh, understanding of the universe is wrong, and the first law of thermodynamics doesn't apply, and maybe something will come out and blow my mind. But I'm kind of I'm kind of skeptical. So, if you see someone promoting alternative viewpoints to that, is that the ultimate red flag that they're probably trying to sell something or promote something? Um, sometimes 
I used to think that. I used to think the people who spread misinformation did so only to sell. I've kind of come back to center on that. I think people get very passionate about different viewpoints, regardless of whether or not they can make money off of it. I mean, just look how passionate people are about politics, you know, or football teams. You know, they're not making like they're not making money off their football team, you know. Um, so I think people just are kind of tribal by nature. And if they're into something, they're going to try and convince you why it's the best thing ever. Um, so I don't necessarily think that it's a, a necessarily a red flag. It's a red flag if they're like, hey, here's this massive problem. And, oh, I just happened to sell the solution to this massive problem. And I always tell people, I'm like, hey, guys, you know, like maybe just like have a little bit of skepticism, you know, like just, you know, don't open the door when the person knocks and says, you know, I'm not here to rob you. I just you won the lottery open up i'm gonna give you your free money you know so is that where i think a lot of people get confused and, and unsure and you know the, the paralysis by analysis of what to do by getting too much into the data is that something you still encounter and feels an issue oh yeah yeah um you, you nailed it um you know research there's so many restrictions because you have to control so many variables otherwise you can't really interpret what you're looking at right um so what I'll say is like research can give you good directionality. For example, when it comes to training, like we're pretty darn sure that multiple sets are better than one hard set for building muscle. Like the, there's pretty clear research on that. Um, we're getting a better idea of what the dose response curve of that looks like. But like how many sets should you exactly do for each body part? Like that's, that's like you're not going to be able to get that out of a research study. Like you can get a directionality, but really, you know, I tell people scientific studies are big blunt instruments and coaching is an art form. Like you, it's good to be able to read studies, but I think a lot of what people don't understand is you can have all the studies you want. You can have great programming. Execution is what matters. Consistency is what matters. And people who have paralysis by analysis, honestly, I'm like, that's just a nice term for saying uh, I'm procrastinating. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm using that to mask laziness. Um, so or I think I heard somewhere that perfectionism is laziness in disguise, you know, something like that. Um, so I think it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that, but I, I kind of like that. I, Actually, one of my, my motivational speech I give is basically that, like, like, stop trying to come up with this great plan, because no matter what your plan is, no matter how good it is, it is going to have to change once you actually start doing stuff. Like, you know, just an example would be like me getting ready for a powerlifting meet. I'm going to have like some pain I'm going to deal with. I'm going to have to modify my training. Like in order for me to train hard enough to get to a meet and do well, I'm going to deal with pain. So that means I'm going to have to, at some point, make modifications. So I can spend, you know, six weeks trying to put the perfect plan together, or I can just go and start doing. And I think a lot of people don't want to put in the work if they don't feel like they've got this perfect plan and the reality is like your plan is not going to survive intact with your, your pursuit of your goals. Like it's fine to have, I'm not saying don't plan. I'm just saying when it comes to planning, 
get a general roadmap and then go. And then, you know, because certain roads are going to be closed, certain roads are going to be uh, filled with traffic and you're going to have to divert, you know, like have a directionality plan, but be ready to adjust. And I think that's the most important thing.